At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. This is Florida Matters. I'm Matthew Petty. This week, we're talking with two black women who are leaders in the community and who've each taken a different approach to politics. Former state senator Athenia Joyner was the first black woman to serve as Senate Minority Leader in the Florida Legislature. We'll hear from her later in the program. First, though, we paid a visit to Black English Bookstore in Tampa Heights. Gwen Henderson, who runs the bookstore with her daughter Ariel, opened the doors last December. Not only is Henderson a new business owner, she's also a first-time Tampa City Councilwoman, winning her race for District 5 last March. Last year was huge, gigantic, enormous, overwhelming, exciting. The bookstore is bright, with high ceilings and walls decorated with colourful paintings. Bookshelves are dedicated to everything from poetry to business, the history of hip-hop and black vernacular. A Marvin Gaye record sits on a turntable, and James Baldwin looks down from a framed print. Henderson, who wears a ball cap covered in buttons, Delta Sigma Theta Sorority, Florida A&M University and others, says her mission is to elevate books by black authors, especially graduates of historically black colleges and universities, or HBCUs. I was reading an article, a reprint of James Baldwin's article, If Black English is Not a Language, Then Tell Me What Is. And it was written in 1977, and I said, that is the name of my bookstore, Black English. Henderson's a longtime educator, and she came up with the idea for the bookstore a couple of years ago while teaching an entrepreneurship course at Hillsborough County Public Schools. She created a business plan, started an online store, and in December opened the doors to her brick-and-mortar storefront. The bookstore's tagline, Free to Read, is a nod to Henderson's great-great-grandfather, Sam Hightower. Henderson says Hightower was born into bondage but died free in 1932. But the U.S. Census revealed that he was unable to read and write. And that is something as an educator that just really, it just kind of shook me to my core. It kept me up at night. And we are free to read as a society now. We're free to read. And there is just so much behind that tagline that I created as the part of the business plan. We sat down to talk with Henderson about books and politics. She began by explaining what opening this bookstore means as Florida's education policies have led to books being removed from public school libraries and standards for teaching black history have changed. There has to be pushback uh, as an educator that works in the state of Florida when you're being told uh, that certain books are not appropriate for children to read. I know that there's a lot wrong with that. And so I have to push back on that at the same time as being an employee of Hillsborough County Public Schools. But opening a bookstore gives me the freedom to provide books that are actually liberated. As a black woman, I have no reason to use the word banned. I have no reason. Books are emancipated. They're free. And I am very happy to say that in this store and within this space because it just makes sense. Do you think you would have opened this physical bookstore at you know, even if there hadn't been that kind of climate that we've had around sort of what books can and can't be read in schools? That's a really good question. Because of the plan, yes, it was in the plan. 
um, to open a bookstore and I'm, you know, at the end of my career as an educator. And so this is a great, significant contribution to the community. You know what happened when you walked in, you and your producer walked in and you immediately just took to it, gravitated toward it with compliments. And that happens a lot. I knew um, that there was a need that I was meeting and this was the right opportunity. And politically, it just happens to be the right climate and right time to do it. What kind of response have you had to the store? You know, the, the physical location's been open a couple of months now. Like, who's stopping by? What are they looking for? <laughs> okay. Well, okay, I'll tell you this. It has been an emotional journey in terms of the people that have entered this space not just my supporters and friends. I had a grand opening, a private grand opening on December 1st. Every city council member came. The mayor's still upset because I don't know what happened to her invitation, but a lot of people um, in my neighborhood came. My sorority sisters, the national president of my sorority, just happened to be in town because there was a convention for black and white you know, fraternities and sororities. And she came to my bookstore opening. She and the vice first vice president. So that coupled with just a very diverse mix of people, including some developers nearby. It, it was, it's, trust me, it's been a really nice surprise who my customer base is. And I wished it that night. I wrote it in my plan, but I said it that first night that I want for my customer base to be as diverse as the people who are visiting the store for the, the private grand opening. And it has happened. It's been a really nice surprise. One of the things that was a surprise was my POS system where I check out that I use for checking out books. He asked me the night before the grand opening, he said, well, what's your goal? What's your goal for, you know, sales goal? I said, I don't have, I just want to pay the rent. You know, I just want to stay alive. I really, the finance piece, um, I don't want to say I would do it for free but this is not my livelihood and that's really good position to be in. I'm at the end of my career. And so I said, I don't have a goal. And the first three days we made almost $18,000. Wow. I know. That's what I said. I was like, wow. And my daughter ran to me and she said, mom, we are booksellers. And I said, oh my gosh, yes, we are. And so it was just really a nice surprise. And my goal really, it, it, I'm, I'm being very transparent right now. I said, you know what? It would just be nice if we just sold $200 worth of books a day. I want to turn now and talk more about politics. Okay, um, sure. Have you always been politically engaged? You know what? Okay. In high school, I used to watch Ted Koppel, Nightline. Do you remember that show? Sure, yeah. Okay, I don't know why I used to watch that show as a teenager. I had to watch that before I went to bed at night. And then I, you know, went off to a historical black college in Tallahassee. Shout out to Florida A&M University. In high school, I was political. Yes, I ran for student government, you know, in that kind of, you know, secondary education way. Went off to FAMU and Jesse Jackson was running for president. So just this slow process of who am I? Am I a Democrat? Am I a Republican? You know, am I liberal? Am I conservative? You know, where I fall in between those two is very interesting. So... Uh, more on the progressive side. So, yeah, I would say that I am political. So the district you represent, District 5, is majority black district. How much responsibility do you feel representing this district? And do you feel like you may get more scrutiny from your constituents than maybe other council members receive? Okay, well, that's a good question. I'm a neophyte, you know, councilwoman. I'm the 16th councilwoman uh, in the city of Tampa, number 16. And so my 
my district is extremely diverse. Uh, East Tampa is a huge part of my district. Um, but I also have, you know, downtown Tampa and Channelside. So I have a very diverse district and I am the councilwoman. I just happen to be a black woman. So my, my, who I represent is the entire district. And that does come with not necessarily challenges. My focus is where I fall in the middle of that as an educated black woman with three college degrees who owns their own property and who had working class parents, a stay-at-home mom and a dad who had a 10th grade education, who was the breadwinner until he passed away. So, you know, I have these diverse experiences that makes my point of view probably uncomfortable for some people. But at the end of the day, I'm going to make the best decisions possible for the community. And I will have done my homework, that's for sure. The election, too, was a bit contentious. Um, city investigation found the previous councillor, Orlando Goods, created a hostile work environment per that investigation. And that election was a little bit, I guess, bumpy in some ways. Do you feel like you have the community on your side in this first year in office? You know what? That, that election was not bumpy. Not for me. I settled in and I stayed focused. Yes, he was found to have created a hostile work environment. It's not a secret that that person that he created that hostile work environment for was related to me. But at the same time, that was not a part of my campaign focus. I stayed focused on the fact that, you know, I had an election to win that was district wide. And I do believe that my competitor took me for granted. And so I think that that was to my advantage. So I, if, when I looked at the results, there were pockets of, you know, spaces uh, in the city within my district that I won that because I put the work in. And then, you know, also it was not, I, I had an easy time convincing people that I am ambitious and that I am a better option. And getting the endorsement of the police union didn't hurt considering that he was a 25-year police veteran, that speaks for itself. And then getting the endorsement of the, you know, major newspaper in town and their write-up. So there was a diverse opinions there uh, that I believe also helped support my victory. Some of the challenges facing Tampa and the district that you represent, uh, things that you campaigned on include affordable housing, jobs, development. What do you think the city needs to do to improve the lot of residents in those areas? That is, oh gosh, such a challenging question. Housing is a major struggle because of the cost. I feel so fortunate for myself as an educator, a single mom, I was able to buy a house 30 years ago as a single mom and an educator. This, this, is, this is two things that people would consider strikes, correct? But yet housing was attainable for me 32 years ago. And that's not the case anymore. It, 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 it's unnerving to know that a college graduate just uh, can't walk out of college anymore and stay with their mom for a little while, get their apartment, save their money, and move into a house. That, that, that just doesn't exist anymore. How people have to go about you know, saving for houses. They may have to go into a townhouse rather than a house. That it is, it's, it's a big challenge. And so the city's responsibility, where we have poured money into affordable housing, but it's not our sole responsibility. It, right. It, I mean, some of these some of these issues are a lot bigger than it's, the it's city of Tampa. It's bigger than the city. Mm. And so um, saying this here on public radio is something that I would say to anyone. It is not 
the city's responsibility solely to address the housing concerns. We get to contribute to it. We get to map out a plan to say, you know, yes, we want people to be able to live, work and play in Tampa. And here's a plan to do that. But at the same time, it also depends on the economy. And there are pockets, pockets of spaces that investors who have connections to Wall Street where they will buy up an entire block of a brand new development and control who gets into those properties. So those are things that we can't do anything about. That's the system and the, the um, th that is how our society, we're a capitalist society, that's how it works. But yet we just have to keep grinding and doing the things that we can do to make housing attainable, but we can't do that alone. What do you think you're gonna focus on for your second year on the city commission? The city council, um, you know what? Okay, so this is, I am eight, nine months in. Um, I'm seven months in, and people are asking me about what I'm going to do next year. As a neophyte, let's see. Well, I am, um, I'm tackling the budget um, is one of the things that I'm focused on and how we go about addressing our social action funds. We are charitable as a city. But I don't, I think that there's some disparity there in terms of who gets those dollars, how long they get to get those dollars, why are the city supporting some organizations and not others. So taking a look at that is one of the things that I want to do, along with championing workforce housing. Also, the first black developed community where the enslaved folks were allowed to land in the Palmetto Thicket of what they created, Central Avenue. They called it the scrub, was that part of the community. It is being revitalized. There's some housing over there. There is a park named after Perry Harvey, the first black city council member. And so that is a very particular of interest to me um, to bring more arts and culture to that particular area. Central Avenue uh, had a lot in common with what you see on 7th Avenue today in terms of businesses. It was the, it was the economic hub of the black community. And so to bring that back is a major reason why I want to stick around for a little while because I would love to see some things highlighted and to bring some life and economic empowerment back to that area. And so there are some things in the works for that. I have a committee that I've created. There's um, an RFP that went out for a theater over in that space, the Tampa Bay History Center has the contract to manage St. James, which is the original church that sat in the center of the community. So that facility um, is now an event space and hopefully will become a history museum. So there's an opportunity there to create um, opportunities where people will travel uh, to come and see you know, Central Avenue. So I'm really excited about that. Well, Gwen Henderson, thank you so much for speaking with me. I appreciate it. Thank you, Matt. Thank you so much for coming to the bookstore and checking it out. I appreciate it. And you can hear a longer version of that interview on the Florida Matters podcast. Henderson shares more about why customers are seeking out her bookstore, and she talks about her ideas for trying to reduce gun violence in Tampa. You're listening to Florida Matters. Coming up, we talk with former state senator Athenia Joyner about her trailblazing career in law and politics. Welcome back to Florida Matters, I'm Matthew Petty. On this episode, we're talking with two black women who are leaders in their communities and in Tampa politics. Athenia Joyner was first elected to the Florida legislature in 2000, taking office amid the turmoil of the Bush v. Gore Supreme Court case. 
Her 16-year career as a state lawmaker included two years as Senate Minority Leader, and she was the first black woman elected to that post. We sat down to talk with Joyner about her trailblazing career and an upbringing that helped shape her commitment to equality and justice. Senator Joyner, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. It's good to be here. Now, you were the first black woman to serve as a Senate Minority Leader in the Florida Legislature and the first black Hillsborough County Aviation Authority member appointed by a governor. That was back in 1991. Those are just a couple of the barriers that you broke in your career. I want to go back to your childhood, though, if we could. You were born in Lakeland in 1943 and later moved to Tampa. What was it like growing up in the Tampa Bay region at that time? Well, my most profound memory as a child was prior to my family moving here from Lakeland. I think I was five and my dad came home one day and said, pull the shades down and lock the door, the Klan's marching. And of course we did, not really knowing what the Klan was. But we did peep out the window, and I saw these men with robes and hoods on, and I asked my father, what was that about? Why is it that we have to lock down? And he said that those are white men who don't like black people, don't feel like they're equal to them, and so they constantly frighten you by showing up and marching and burning crosses in your yard. But don't worry about it. I'll take care of you. And then subsequent to that, we moved to Tampa. Mm -hmm. I had a wonderful childhood. My father owned the original Cotton Club on Central Avenue. Central Avenue was the mecca of black business in this town. It was uh, from Cass to Henderson, maybe about eight blocks. And every business within those streets were black businesses. You had an opportunity to see professionals and non-professionals, doctors, lawyers, dentists, uh, photographers, just the gamut of businesses were located in that eight block radius. But the thing about it is some were run by black people, owned by someone else, but my father owned his building. And so um, it was it was wonderful. I I knew that of all these people there, I could be anything I wanted to be. There was Francisco Rodriguez, the lawyer, Dr. Lewis, the dentist, uh, the Florida Sentinel Bulletin, the second black newspaper in Tampa. Mm -hmm. And I was the first teenage social editor of the newspaper. So how come you decided to go into law and not journalism? I knew when I was in fifth grade that I wanted to be a lawyer. Brown v. Boyd opinion came down when I was in fifth grade, and there was some discussion about it. And that's when I decided, heck, I want to be like Thurgood Marshall. I want to be a lawyer so I can fight for equality for black people specifically and all others who may uh, be marginalized. I was exposed to the possibility of other professions, but I wanted to be a lawyer. When you reflect back to that first memory you talked about seeing the Klan marching, I mean, if you'd known what they were, I imagine it could have been quite terrifying, but it sounds like you weren't really sure what you were seeing. Well, I was five years old, and it was my first experience. And so, you know, I had to ask my dad. I mean, we had vaguely heard about the Klan, but, you know, with kids, you kind of shelter them and all. 
And this didn't happen every day in town, you know. And so it was just that first exposure, which is indelibly imprinted in my psyche. From first grade on, I saw how we were treated, where we couldn't go, the colored water fountains, uh, the colored restrooms, all those things that uh, we lived through in a segregated society. Now, thinking to your high school days as a high school student in the 1960s, you were able to witness and and take part in the civil rights movement firsthand as black Floridians fought for equality. Tell us about your role in the Woolworth lunch counter sit-ins in Tampa. Well, this was February 1960, and I was in 11th grade, and George Edgecombe, as president of the student council, was contacted uh, by the NAACP Youth Council President Clarence Ford and said, we're going to go down and demonstrate. This was late February. The first demonstrations had occurred in North Carolina on February 1st of 1960. And George came to me and he said, he asked me if I wanted to participate. And I said, of course. And he said, well, you're the last one because I was known for being very loquacious. And he said... (laughs) If we had asked you first, the whole world would have known it before we even got to March. And uh, I said yes. My dad was reluctant, uh, having experienced prejudice and racism as he had, because he was born in 1901. So he was leery, fearing that there would be some harm to come to us. But my mom said, we're here for you. And so I became a member of the group of the 20 Middleton students who participated. And we went to uh, St. Paul AME Church, you know, to explain what we were going to do and that this was a nonviolent event, that we would stay focused and understand that we had people there who cared about us and that if we wanted to back out, we could. But it was a, an individual decision, and, and I was all in for it. Mm-hmm. When you think back to what it was like taking part of that, were you scared? I mean, were you worried there could be some kind of violence towards you and your fellow demonstrators? Well, you know, the thought was there that perhaps, however, we didn't know how people would react, but law enforcement was there. Mm-hmm. There were people there. And when you're young and idealistic and you feel that your rights have been trampled on, you do what you think is in the best interest of you and your people, and you put aside your fears, and you move on and participate and say whatever happens, happens. It's it's it, That thing about being young makes a big difference when you are fighting uh, for equality. Mm-hmm. I want to ask about your kind of entry into politics. Was there a single event or, or person that really motivated you to, to get involved in politics? Yes and no. In 1972, I met Shirley Chisholm when I was in Washington, D.C. at the Congressional Black Caucus annual legislative weekend, and we developed a relationship. And Shirley Chisholm was the first black woman elected to the United States Congress and the first black to run from a major party for president of the United States. Mm -hmm. So she called and asked me if I would organize a group of women and would I lead them and be her local campaign manager. And and just for our listeners too, she was a a New Yorker. Yes, she was from Brooklyn, New York. And and first elected in 1968. Yes, first elected in 68, but so here it was 72 and she's running for president. Mm -hmm. 
And so she asked me to be a local campaign person, and, and I was, and I, I enjoyed it. So fast forward to 1999, and I get invited to a party at uh, Alex Sank and Bill McBride's house, and there's a lady there, Congresswoman Lo- Lois Franco, now from Palm Beach County, mm-hmm. and she told Bill McBride, Bill Nelson, and Bob Buckhorn that she was looking for a candidate for the Florida House of Representatives. And they said, there she is. And they pointed at me. And then I said, yes, and the rest is history. I I ran, she asked, in December of 1999, and I won in November 2000. We were in the minority. But the good thing was, contrary to today, we had an, one more than enough to keep the majority party from being a super majority. Mm-hmm. So we have 43. When you think about how things are now, I mean, your time in state politics wrapped up at the end of the Obama administration. This was in 2016. And, you know, the, the legislature, as you point out, has, has changed a lot since then. Uh, you know, now Republicans hold a super majority. The last couple of years in particular focused on culture war issues like the teaching of black history. Why do you think that has happened, and and what do you think you would do if you were still in the Florida legislature? Well, first I want to point out that this is not the first time that there was a Mm supermajority. When Senator Nan Rich was Democratic leader, there were only 12 Democrats in the Florida Senate out of 40. But the big difference between then and now is there were moderate Republicans, Republicans who stood up and did not follow the leader at the Pied Pipers, we would say. Because when Johnny Bird was the speaker, former speaker Johnny Bird in the House when I was there, whatever the the, the speaker said, they did. Uh, it just appeared to me that they didn't have the moxie or the guts to stand up and oppose things that they knew were wrong. But the Senate was a different chamber. And every night when I was in the House, I'd say, thank God for the Senate. Then when I got to the Senate, I was able to work with these people who saw things differently and who would not let any one person control them. Now they don't have that. It's basically you do whatever you're told to do. I mean, is that a different way of doing politics from when you were in the legislature? Well, now the mindset of those who are there is different because Mm -hmm. the eight are Republicans who voted with the 12 Democrats, and we killed prison privatization abortion bill and another bill called Parent Trigger. Mm -hmm. We killed those three bills because these were independent thinkers. And that wouldn't happen today? No, no. And and those didn't care about what the the president of the Senate wanted uh, because they said we controlled our destiny. We we think for ourselves. That does not happen now. When you think about and, and, and I just want to kind of wrap things up here, but when you think about you know the state of the world now, politics in Florida, some of these issues you've been talking about, what gives you hope when you think about the future? Well, I, I've encountered a lot of young people who now are beginning to see and understand that they have a responsibility to get out there and to help make change occur. I just have confidence that I know that we are not going to back down. See, that's the major thing. Black people are not going to back down. I'm not going back. I would die first. And there are young ones who are saying they now have some real understanding of what those of us from the 60s encountered. 
you know, and so it's taken on a different form, but they're standing up and speaking out and organizing. My generation is octogenarians now, and consequently, in a few years, we'll all be gone. But you can never stop fighting. You can never, ever forget who you are and whose you are, where you came from and how you got to where you are. We all have a responsibility to give back, regardless as to whether we were uh, affluent or whether we were in poverty. We're all God's children, all equal in his eyesight, and hopefully one day in the eyesight of all of Americans. Athena, Joanna, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And you can hear more from former State Senator Athenia Joyner on our podcast. Find Florida Matters wherever you get your podcasts. There you can also hear an extended interview with Gwen Henderson. Photos from our visit to Black English Bookstore are at WUSF.org. Our executive producer is Grayson Doctor. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.